So when was the last time that you took the high road? The high road. Now, we're not talking about the long, winding pavement that leads up to Mount Mitchell in North Carolina. Not that kind of high road. And we're not talking about the high road brand ice cream that you can get at the grocery store, like cinnamon crumble is one of the flavors. Now, I want you to know that I take my sermon preparation very seriously, and I don't like talking about things that I have not experienced firsthand. So yes, I did go to the grocery store last night, and I bought High Road brand cinnamon crumble ice cream, and it was fantastic. And I can highly commend it to you. As a matter of fact, I can highly commend to you every brand of ice cream at the grocery store. So just go have fun and enjoy. We're not talking about the High Road to Mount Mitchell or High Road ice cream. We're talking about the high road where you do something kind and right and honorable when it's not easy. When you do something kind and right and honorable when you don't feel like it. When you do something kind and right and honorable when your family and friends might tell you to do the opposite. When you do something kind and right and honorable when really you want to do the opposite. Rather than being kind and right and honorable, you really want to be harsh and mean and maybe do something a little low down and dirty. That's what it means to take the high road. You may have heard the story from last week from Houston, Texas, about the father that heard that his son was being bullied at school. And he contacted the school officials and went through all the proper channels and tried to get a little more information about the young man who was bullying his son. And what he found was that the young man was acting out against his classmates partly because he was being mocked and criticized for his shoes and his clothes and the condition of his shoes and his clothes. And the father got permission to to dig a little deeper and, and found out that part of the reason that he was acting out against his criticism and being mocked is because his family is currently homeless. So again, through the proper channels, the father made arrangements to actually meet this young man who had been bullying his son. And this is what he said to him, or what he says about meeting him. I came with the energy that he was ready to receive, because a lot of times, just because you want to talk to me, doesn't mean I want to talk to you. (laughs) We can own that, right? And then he said this, but I think he was ready to talk to me. He knew that I cared He saw it in my eyes. That father took that young boy, young man really, and took him out shopping. And while they were out shopping, he talked to him about making choices. He talked to him about character. He talked to him about what it means to be a real man. And according to the father, the bully and his son have now developed a friendship. Now, is that how all bully stories end? Is that how every bully story should be handled? Sadly, no. But it is a picture of a father that showed his son and a bully and a bully's family and school officials and a community and me and you and anyone else who's seen or heard his story what it means on the first try to take the high road. If you're a Christian, God has called you to take the high road. Is that always going to be easy? Nope. 
Are you always going to feel like you want to do that? No. Are you going to find yourself fighting against taking the high road? Probably. Are you going to find yourself wanting to honor your feelings more than honoring Jesus? Probably. But do any of those things change the fact that if you're a believer, you have been called to take the high road? No, they don't. So, why should you take the high road? Let's see if we can find out. Paul's letter to Philemon, beginning with verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Who is a person in your life that you have a tremendous amount of trust and respect in? It might be somebody who's still living or maybe somebody who's no longer with us. Who's that person that you deeply respect? You got their name? in your mind or a picture of them in your mind? All right, now take that person and imagine a scenario where that person asks you to do something within the confines of basic moral and non-illegal activity. They ask you to do something and, and you don't ask a lot of questions because you have that much trust and that much respect for them. I would imagine all of us have at least one, maybe two people like that. That's what Paul would have been to Philemon. Philemon would have had that kind of attitude toward Paul. One of the greatest and most tender expressions of love I have ever seen, and I've seen it several times, is the love that Pam and Whitey Covington have for the pastor that led them to the Lord. Several times they have mentioned Charlie Goho to me, and when they do, all of their facial expression is just full of sweet, humble love. They are so thankful that he helped them find Jesus. That's the relationship Paul and Philemon had. Philemon had that kind of love toward Paul. Paul led Philemon to the Lord. Paul was indirectly responsible for the church and starting the church that Philemon belonged to. Because of Paul, Philemon's life changed. Because of Paul, Philemon's family changed. Philemon would not hesitate to do everything he could to honor a request from Paul because he loved Paul. But it wouldn't have to be a request that Paul gives. Paul could give a gracious order. That sounds like an oxymoron, right? Gracious and order don't seem to go together. How many of you parents have been in a conversation with your kids that went like this? Why do I have to do that? Because I... (laughs) Yeah, we know that, right? Paul could have easily in this letter dropped some, because I said so. (laughs) That's what this is. I'm, I'm making a request, and I need you to do it because I said so. And why could he do that? Well, because Paul had some authority in the church. And where did he get that authority in the church? Well, he got his authority from God. Listen to how Paul began some of his other letters. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 1, similar. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Of God. Romans 1 1. 
Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then 1 Timothy, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul was not a church leader because he liked public speaking. (laughs) Paul was, was not a church leader because he thought it was a respectable career choice, you know, with a salary and a few benefits. Paul wasn't a church leader because he liked working with people. Paul wasn't a church leader because he couldn't find anything else to do. Paul was a church leader by the call and the commandment and the will of God. Sounds like a big deal. And see, Philemon knew all of that. So when he heard a request from Paul, it would change how he heard it. He would not be quick to blow it off spiritually or practically. Spiritually, he wouldn't blow it off because he had seen God work in Paul's life. He had seen the the gospel working out through Paul's life. And Philemon knew, man, that, there's no other explanation for that than God. And practically, he wouldn't blow Paul off because Paul led him to the Lord. He had this relationship, this respect, this trust. So a request from Paul would, would be honored. And really, Paul had the practical and spiritual authority to order Philemon to do something. Now, authority in the church is is always a tricky subject, right? Why? Well, I think part of the reason it's it's a tricky subject can really be boiled down to one word, and that's the word trust. And even that one word could be broken down in a couple of categories, and, and the categories would be this. Church leaders who are untrustworthy and church members who refuse to trust. Can break down in, in those two categories really pretty simply. When it comes to the gospel and the life of the local church, when it comes to church leaders at Holland Avenue, when it comes to church leaders at any other gospel church here in Casey or West Columbia, when it comes to church leaders at any other gospel church in South Carolina or anywhere in the world, this is what the Word of God says to us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. (laughs) One of those great Bible verses you can be selfish about. Hey, I need to listen to this because it's good for me. Now, is that a blanket statement? Obey and submit and trust your church leaders no matter what. No, in no way is that a blanket statement. No, the picture here is this. Obey and submit and trust your church leaders who are watching over the souls of the flock. So how does a church leader watch over the souls of the flock? Well, there's a lot of categories for answers for that question and and multiple answers we could come up with just from what the Bible teaches. So let's just, we're just going to pick one for the sake of time, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. A church leader must accurately handle the word of truth. What does that mean? Well, they must accurately handle the gospel. What does that mean? Well, they have to get the gospel right. What does that mean? David Guzik says this, If a man will not first stick to the word 
and will not then stick with the Word of God, he is not qualified for leadership in God's church. In the early church, the church leaders had this moment where it seemed like that they were not sticking to the Word of God. Or at the very least, they were about to be pulled away from sticking to the Word of God. And what was pulling them away from sticking to the Word of God? Was it sin? Was it arrogance? Was it pride? Was it laziness? No. What was pulling them away from sticking to the Word of God was something good and noble and healthy and a significant part of the ministry of the church. Something good was pulling them away from what was best. And what was pulling them away? Listen to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I'm reading this from the King James Version. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. That word means provision of assistance or care, providing for relief. In verse 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. I just love that phrase because it's not, not a phrase that we use, right? It is not reason. It's, it's not reason. It's, it's not wise. It's not right. It's not good. It's not best. It is unprofitable for the church if the church leaders do not stick to the word of God first and most. It's unprofitable for the church. Now, does that mean that church leaders should spend 10 hours a day in their office studying the Bible? Probably not. <laughs> but it does really mean that if God's Word is not their first priority, the church will suffer. The church will suffer. What does that look like? Well, let's just use the example we just said. The church could suffer if a church leader were to spend all day in their office reading and reading and reading and never have any interaction with the flock. Why? Because then the, the numbers of the church might shrink because there's no relationship between the church leaders and the church members. That's what would happen possibly in that scenario. Or another scenario is that the church leaders would not sit in their office reading and studying all the time, but they would be out and about they would be making every visit and every meeting and every conference. They would never neglect the ministration in the church. They would never neglect the provision and the care. But they would neglect the Word of God. They'd spend a little bit of time here or there, but, but not really stick to it the way that God calls church leaders to stick to it. And then what would happen is they would fail the church. And the church would be spiritually weak. And we live in a crooked and perverse generation. So a church that is spiritually failing, a church that is spiritually weak, they go out into a crooked, perverse generation, and the best they can pull up is some stories about Moses and Noah and David from the Old Testament that they remember maybe from Sunday school when they were a kid. But when it comes to the grand and the great and the glorious gospel that saved them, they are dumbfounded. They can't speak. They have no words for this crooked and perverse generation, this generation that is lost and desperate and hungry for hope and joy. Here's the irony. In that scenario, the numbers of the church might grow. Why? 
Because the church leaders are out and about. They're making every visit, every meeting, every conference. There's no neglect of any of the ministration. So the activities increase and the programs increase and the events increase. And boy, there's a lot happening and people want to come and be a part of it because they're seeing the church leaders all the time, everywhere, everywhere. But according to Jesus and Isaiah, what would really be happening in that scenario is that the people would be worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts would be far away from God. Why? Because the church leaders are not sticking to the word of God. In other words, the church is actually far away from God. It is unprofitable for the church if the church leaders do not stick to the Word of God. Church leaders that stick to the Word of God, they are trustworthy. Likewise, church members that stick to the Word of God, they are trustworthy. In fact, trust in the church is defined by, in and around and on, the Word of God. It's the Word of God that creates trust. So Paul and Philemon, they had that. It was already there. There there wasn't any issue of trust between them. That was part of their relationship. And because of Paul's authority in the church from God, and because of Paul's authority from his relationship with Philemon, because he led him to the Lord, Paul very easily, with no arguments, can make a gracious order to Philemon to do something. But he makes it as a request. And what is he going to ask him to do? He's going to ask him to forgive somebody. We live in a culture that seems to care very little for some valid reasons and what seem to be a lot of invalid reasons, cares very little for trusting authority. That, that is our culture. We are tempted to say it happens just outside the church, but there's no church and no place and no school and no government and no country that's not, no home that's not touched with the issue of authority. But authority is not the only issue we have. We also have an issue with forgiveness. John MacArthur says this, we live obviously in a society that knows little about forgiveness. We live in a society that cares little about forgiveness. In fact, he goes on, I would think that one of the major contributors, if not the major contributor, to the destruction of relationships in our culture is the absence of forgiveness. And he says this, our culture pushes us to be unforgiving. It celebrates and exalts people who are not willing to forgive. All you have to do, I mean, I haven't done this, so maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I'm pretty sure I could just go check this weekend's movies, whatever's at the box office. And there's at least one movie out right now that is majorly promoting vengeance. At least one. There's usually more than one. So we celebrate it. We, we exalt it. And then he says this. We live in a retaliating, vengeful, hostile, angry culture that wants to make everybody else the perpetrator of a crime against us and us, frankly, responsible for nothing except vengeance. He made that statement 27 years ago and 20 days. So, question. Over the last 27 years, 
does our culture seem less retaliating, vengeful, hostile, and angry, or more? 27 years later, are, are we more forgiving as a culture, or are we less forgiving as a culture? Trusting authority is not what the cool kids are doing. Forgiving other people, not what the cool kids are doing. But I would caution you, be careful about saying, hey, I wish I could be like the cool kids. Because there's some danger in that. The next verse that I'm going to read can be a little confusing. So I'm going to read it in, in four different versions. Okay? I'm going to start with the King James Version. Matthew 6, verse 15. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. New American Standard Version. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Amplified Classic Version. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, their reckless and willful sins, leaving them their trespasses, letting them go, and giving up resentment, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. The message paraphrased version. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. Those are all super confusing, right? It is almost impossible to figure out what Jesus is really saying, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope you can hear my sarcasm because pretty clear message there, right? Our refusal to forgive in some way, in some shape, in some measure makes things right or wrong with us and God, wrong. It, it breaks down that relationship. If you refuse to forgive others, there is something messed up between you and God. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing we want to be involved in, right? C.S. Lewis wrote this, I think somewhere around 1949 maybe. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. <laughs> understatement of the day. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. What does that mean? He tells us. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? Things just got real, right? Because <laughs> we heard our story somewhere in there, or we're connected to one of those, right? So how do we do it? Lewis goes on. Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, Father, our, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those that trespassed against us. And then he says this, we are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it 
is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. Again, great little selfish moment there. When we refuse to forgive, we are actually keeping God's mercy away from us. From us. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. Paul knew there were no exceptions for Philemon either. And so he writes to them, and he says, look, I need you to forgive somebody. And who was he asking him to forgive? This is great. Paul's going to ask Philemon to forgive someone that did him wrong that broke his trust, that cost him money, that stole from him. Let me get that little bio again. Paul's going to ask Philemon to forgive someone who did him wrong, who broke his trust, who cost him money, and who stole from him. That's going to be an easy person to forgive, right? I mean, this is going to be a breeze. So Paul is, is going to ask He's not going to order. He's going to take a different route. What route is he going to take? Listen to verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul's about 60 years old here, maybe, maybe older, but at least 60. And what has Paul experienced at this point in his 60 years of life? Well, here's a snapshot. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 24 and 25. Paul writes, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I'm not the math guy, but five times 39 is, is a lot of beatings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Again, we're talking about rocks, not medical marijuana, just to be clear. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Verse 26. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. As we've said before, man, Paul, just stay home, man. Come on. Verse 27. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. That's, that's a lot for one man in 60 years, okay? And then he, he adds this. On top of that, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. He's concerned about about the church. He's concerned about all these different churches that he's helped start, even as he is shipwrecked, even as he is beaten. His primary concern is for the church. And after all of those experiences in life, what had Paul learned? After 60 plus years of of doing life on earth, what was the one thing as he entered life as a senior adult that he was promoting more than anything else? He was promoting love. That's what he was promoting. You know, according to the, the fast food discount coffee rules, Paul was a senior adult. 
But regardless of what your age is, let me ask you a question. As you are growing older, okay, just right now, think about your next birthday, okay? As you are growing towards your next birthday, as you're growing older, are you growing in love? Are you growing in grace? Are you growing in mercy? Are you growing in forgiveness? Or, as you get older, are you growing in apathy? Are you growing in anger? Are you growing in mistrust? Are you growing in bitterness? If so, then you are not growing in the Lord. At least that's how the Bible speaks from cover to cover. If we're growing in anger and apathy and mistrust and and bitterness, we are not growing in the Lord. And guess what? That's unprofitable for you. But it's also unprofitable for your spouse, and it's unprofitable for your kids, and it's unprofitable for your neighbors, and it's unprofitable for everybody sitting in this room, and it's unprofitable for every other person sitting in this community. Why? Because our lives touch everybody in some way, shape, or form. And you know what the reality is right now in this room? And, and for anybody who can hear my voice, there are people who are in the middle of bad news right now. There are people struggling. There are people who are having a really hard time at school. They're having a really hard time at work. They're having a really hard time in their marriage. They're having a really hard time with their parents. They're having a really hard time with their kids. They're, they're having a really hard time with their health. And listen, I want you to know the cure for your hard times is not anger, apathy, mistrust, or bitterness. Won't cure a thing. And you know what? The cure for the hard times and the difficulties of people in your family and people that you're sitting with in this room, the cure is not your anger, your mistrust, your bitterness, your lack of forgiveness. That's not a cure. It's not a cure. We began with a sentence, what you forgive. So what do you forgive? Paul tells Philemon, you forgive what's proper. Well, what's proper? Well, what's proper is whatever Jesus would tell you to forgive. What would Jesus tell us to forgive? Well, Jesus would tell us to love our neighbors in the same way that we love ourselves. And so therefore, by default, Jesus would say to forgive our neighbors in the same way that we forgive ourselves. Because you know what? 99.9% of the time, we're quick to forgive ourselves, right? (laughs) I mean, we we don't hold a lot of things against us because we're right, right? I mean, our opinion's right. What we did was right. Our decisions are right. And even when they're wrong, we ain't going to own it. Now we, we're going we're gonna to soft shoe away from it. And we're going to quickly forgive ourselves in a millisecond. But boy, we ain't going to forgive that girl behind the counter at the fast food restaurant. Now we're going to let her have it. And we're not going to forgive that lady at customer service. Now we're going to let them have it. And we're not going to forgive our spouse and our kids and our grandkids. And our, no, we're going to be quick 
We're going to be quick to say, mm, man, now you, you've got to own your responsibility. Not me, I'm good. You know, there's a few stories that Jesus told that really shot that idea down. So Jesus would say, love others the way you love yourself and forgive others the way you forgive yourself. And what would motivate us to do any of that? I love what Alexander McLaren says about Paul's motivation. This is great. There is nothing more remarkable about Paul than the undaunted courage, the unimpaired elasticity of spirit, the buoyancy of gladness, which bore him high upon the waves of the troubled sea in which he had to swim. It's good language. He goes on. If ever there was a man that had a bright light burning within him in the deepest darkness, it was that little weather-beaten Jew. (laughs) That's good. If there was ever anybody, you, you can look at Paul. He had a light burning within the darkness. McLaren goes on. And what was it that made him master of circumstances and enabled him to keep sunshine in his heart when winter bound all the world around him? What made this bird sing in a darkened cage? He tells us. One thing. The continual presence, consciously with him, by faith, of that Christ who had revolutionized his life and who continued to bless and to gladden it. What was his motivation? Jesus. Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Has your life been revolutionized by Jesus the Christ? If so, then because of who Jesus is, you are continually blessed. Not because of your circumstances, not because of your sin, not even because of your lack of forgiveness, but because of who Jesus is. If you've been saved, you are continually blessed. And if you are continually blessed, likewise, because of who Jesus is, you should be continually glad. Now, now we won't be. We get it. We're going to have our moments. But boy, there are waves of gladness that should come to us. And because of Jesus, if you have salvation in him and you have been continually blessed and you have continual gladness heading your way, then you should forgive. We should. We should forgive. Why? Why should we forgive? Because Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. So we should forgive because we've been forgiven. And so our motivation to forgive is for love's sake. We forgive for love's sake. We trust for love's sake. We love for love's sake. We forgive for love's sake.